you're new on the scene, this is great timing for you because uh, we're actually going to dive into and, and unpack one of the you're earliest to a beautiful uh, Christian mess. creeds. A new sermon uh, you find it in the scriptures in First Corinthians chapter 14, the first few verses our of this morning's passage. And so uh, if you're wondering what is Christianity all about, what do Christians believe, what are the basic tenets of the Christian faith, I know that might sound strange to to throw that out there in the middle of the Bible belt, but the reality is, is that there are people who have been confused, even by the church at times, as to what Christianity really is. And so we want to unpack that this morning, and I think it's going to tie in really well to the baptisms as we even look at the resurrection of Jesus, and we talk about dying with Christ and being raised with him to walk in newness of life. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those. Bibles and flip open to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible's yours. The church's gift to you. We want you exploring the scriptures uh, on your own time, so please take that for free. Um, Let me do this. Let me just pray for us, and we'll jump in, uh, because we have much to cover this morning. God, you are good. Uh, We love you. We thank you for providing a way uh, for us to be restored into a right relationship with you through your son, Jesus. I pray that he's made much of this morning. I pray that the gospel is clear. I pray that those who come in with doubts and skepticism uh, would have uh, you meet them in the, the middle of their doubts. Uh, pray that those of us uh, who are Christians and still walk in the midst of doubt would find our faith strengthened by this morning's passage. Would you do all of these things, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and we lift these things up in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you, uh, but... For me personally, I'm like the guy in Mark's gospel uh, who uh, came to Jesus and and asked that Jesus would heal his child. And in the midst of that encounter with Jesus said, I believe Jesus, help my unbelief. So I'm I'm a guy who was a skeptic growing up toward Christianity in the middle of the Bible belt with all these Christians around me. I looked in on it and I said, it just doesn't jive with me. It doesn't, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The dots don't connect for me very well. And then over the course of time, um, God began to move and stir and eventually um, just brought light to shine where there was darkness in my heart and in my mind and I became a Christian. And ever since then, uh, it's been a putting to death of the old self. So there's still doubts. There's still skepticism that arises in my mind. I can tell you honestly, as a Christian, there are days that I wake up and I go, I really believe that God put on human flesh and lived a perfect sinless life over the course of three decades and then died and his death actually matters for me 2,000 years later. I believe that. And I sit with those moments and I wrestle with those doubts at times. And so I think this morning is gonna be super helpful if that's you, because we're gonna look at one of the the most foundational tenets of the Christian faith, namely the resurrection of Jesus and talk about its validity. Um, If you look at verse one, you get into this creed that, that I mentioned just a moment ago, this earliest Christian creed from the apostle Paul. He says, now I would remind you brothers, who is Paul talking to here? Is he talking to pagans, temple worshipers? No, he's talking to Christians, right? I would remind you brothers, sisters in Christ. So Paul says, I would remind you Christians of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul says, brothers and sisters in Christ, let me remind you of the gospel. You received it already? Great. Let me remind you of it. You're standing in it, great, let me remind you of it. You're being saved by it, great, let me remind you of it. That the gospel is is not just that stuff for those who haven't heard it yet, but rather the gospel matters for every one of us 
every day until the day that we die. That the gospel, I've said this before, is not the entry ramp onto the highway of Christianity alone to then be abandoned for bigger and better things once you're in the fast lane. Rather, we're, we're constantly preaching things to ourselves. You, you talk to yourself more than anyone else does, probably not out loud. You'd be a weirdo if you did that, but you, you tell yourself things throughout the day constantly, and a lot of those things are not gospel. In fact, many of those things are anti-gospel, and so we need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves. We need to be reminding ourselves daily of who we are in Christ. Paul says, let me remind you of what you might be inclined to think that you've graduated beyond. And then he goes into it. He says, verse three, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that what's in first importance is the gospel, not the color of our chair cushions, not the time that we meet on Sunday morning, not the instrumentation of our band. Do, do other things matter? Yes and amen. But what is of first importance is the gospel, that um, if a church excels in all things but abandons the gospel, that church fails. In fact, by biblical definition, it's not even a church at that point, that what matters most, Paul says, is the gospel. And then to be consistent, he goes on to share the gospel with them that he knows that they need. He says, the gospel is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Here, Paul unpacks the basic tenets of the Christian faith, that Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose from the dead. If you go back to chapter 11, Paul focuses a great deal on Jesus' death. We talked about this. If you weren't here, we don't have time to unpack it this morning, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to a sermon entitled The Lord's Supper from a few weeks ago where we talked about um, communion and, and how communion was established and how communion points us to the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, that his death made atonement for sins. And so we looked at the bloody um, brutal death of Jesus a few weeks ago, but here Paul focuses more on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, now why is that so? I think the answer is because the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. It's the bottom block in the, in the Jenga game, right? You pull it out and all of Christianity crumbles. The entire worldview crumbles. So we need to spend a little bit of time on the resurrection this morning, and Paul is kind to, to take us there. See, the, the beauty of Christianity is that it's not naive idealism. It, it's faith rooted in historic reality, that the resurrection of Jesus historically happened. So here's what I want to do for a few minutes. I want to take us into the courtroom, and, and I want to address some objections toward the resurrection that may exist out there. And if you're not a Christian, hopefully this will be helpful to you to um, put some of your doubt and skepticism aside. And if you are a Christian, hopefully it'll be helpful in one, strengthening your faith, but two, even helping you to be a better missionary as you um, step out uh, into the mission field as you leave this place today. Uh, objection number one, the swoon theory. Um, there are some people who believe that Jesus didn't actually die, um, but rather that he just simply passed out. Uh, with, with respect to all the blood loss, he just went into unconscious mode, and then over the course of time, he was able to kind of come to, and, and then he, he went about and uh, began to reveal himself to people. If you go back a few weeks ago and listen to that sermon on chapter 11, uh, where we talked about uh, the death of Jesus, it was a violent, brutal, horrific death. If you were here, you remember, you wanted to look away at times. It was like a bad car accident, right? Jesus was beaten. He was scourged. He was nailed to a cross. He died a death by asphyxiation. If a criminal escaped in, in the first uh, century Greco-Roman world, the executioner who declared him dead when he was not dead would have been publicly executed himself. That was what was on the line for the executioner who walked up to Jesus to check and see if he was alive or not. And so we're told in John 19, when they came to Jesus, 
and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. That a professional executioner drove a spear into Jesus' side, bursting his heart sack and causing blood and water to flow out of his body. Even if, if he somehow survived the beatings and the crucifixion and the speared heart, he would have then had to uh, survive uh, being wrapped in roughly 100 pounds of burial linens that would have suffocated him. And even if he survived all that, including the 100 pound, uh, pounds of burial linens, then he would have had to endure three days in a cold, dark tomb without food, water, or medical attention in his current state. And if he somehow endured all of that and survived, there's no way that upon approaching the disciples, they're looking at him as a triumphant, exalted, risen king in the state that they're seeing him in. That theory just doesn't hold up under scrutiny. And so some move to a second theory, the wrong tomb theory. There are some who believe that Jesus did indeed die, um, but for some, the argument is that he was put in an unmarked tomb and that uh, when they went back three days later, they went to the wrong tomb and thus they, they walked in and there was no Jesus there. But the problem with that is that Jesus's tomb would have been very easy to find because he was gifted the tomb of a very wealthy man in Jerusalem at the time, a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. If you look at Matthew 27, beginning in verse 57, we're told that when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Lee Strobel uh, has a book entitled The Case for Christ. It's a great apologetic book. It, he, he came in as a, an atheist, uh, searching out the truth claims of Christianity and began to approach a number of people and, and put Jesus on trial, so to speak. And uh, if you're a skeptic, I would encourage you to read that book. But this is one of the things he says about this theory. He says, the site of Jesus's tomb was known to Christian and Jew alike. So if it weren't empty, it would be impossible for a movement founded on belief in the resurrection to have come into existence in the same city where this man had been publicly executed and buried. All this to say that if Jesus had, had not truly risen from death, it would have been really easy to find the tomb, open it up, and present Jesus' dead body as evidence, right? But there was no dead body in the tomb. Luke 24 tells us, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, so some move to a third theory known as the stolen body theory, the mission impossible theory that um, most people were not claiming that Jesus's body was still in the tomb. The real question was, what happened to the body? And, and some believe that the body was stolen, that the Pharisees just kind of dropped down by a rope and you know, grabbed Jesus, pulled him up through the top of the, the lid of the tomb and, and somehow escaped with him. However, if you look at Matthew 27, we're told that the Pharisees went to great lengths to make sure that the tomb was secure and that the body wouldn't be stolen. Like they had that purpose in mind as you read Matthew 27, which tells us the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter Jesus said while he was still alive, that after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first." 
And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. So you have armed men stationed outside of the tomb, which is sealed with a giant rock that's difficult for human beings to move. It weighs so much. No one's getting in easily. No one's getting out easily. But even if the body was stolen, it doesn't explain the fact that hundreds of eyewitnesses see the resurrected Jesus on the scene. That even if the body is stolen, it doesn't explain the fact that a former dead man is now walking uh, throughout the city and the surrounding areas for people to see. Uh, imagine if I told you that uh, Michael Jackson was no longer dead. He had risen from the grave. I think the first thing that we would do, right, is we would send reporters to his gravesite to see if the body's really there. And if it's not really there, the first thing we're thinking is someone stole that body. But what if then you flipped on the TV and, and all of a sudden you, you see Michael Jackson at a dance party uh, you know, on a rooftop in LA. He's alive, he's moonwalking. All of a sudden, uh, our argument that he was stolen from his grave doesn't quite uh, hold the weight that it, it once would have held. That's the point here. The point is that Jesus is alive and he's being seen by hundreds of people, which leads others to a fourth theory, namely the hallucination theory, that some believe that uh, when eyewitnesses saw Jesus, they were hallucinating. Um, I went on a mission trip. This was probably about a decade ago to inner city Philadelphia. And inner city, city Philly is pretty rough if you've ever been there. Um, lots of heroin addicts. There are heroin hospitals. Um, the church has, has actually um, abandoned the inner city uh, to a great extent, and many of what used to be cathedrals are now heroin hospitals. And, and I sat with a guy over a pancake breakfast who was strung out on drugs, and he was fairly coherent for a few minutes. But then at one point in the conversation, he looked down and he said, do you see that? And I looked down and I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? And he, do you see that right there? And I looked down and I'm like, yeah, I see a plate of pancakes. And he's like, that's God, man. God's in my pancakes. And he just went on and on for minutes and minutes. And you could tell that, that he was seeing things that just weren't there. He was, he was hallucinating. Something was happening. The drugs were doing something to his mind. And some believe that that's what happened when people saw the risen Jesus in the wake of his resurrection. The problem with that is that uh, medically, scientifically, uh, multiple people cannot see the same hallucination at the same time. Let me share this quote with you from Gary Collins, uh, who's a licensed clinical psychologist with a PhD in clinical psychology from Purdue University. He says this, he says, hallucinations are individual occurrences. By their very nature, only one person can see a given hallucination at a time. They certainly aren't something which can be seen by a group of people. Neither is it possible that one person can somehow induce a hallucination in somebody else. Since a hallucination exists only in this subjective, personal sense, it is obvious that others cannot witness it. And Jesus appeared to multiple people, we're told, at a time on multiple occasions. He appeared to Cleopas and other, another disciple in Luke 24. Later on in that chapter, 11 disciples and others Jesus appeared to. He appeared to 10 apostles and others in John 20. He appeared to Thomas and, and, and other apostles later on in that same chapter. He appeared to seven apostles in John 21. He appeared to the disciples in Matthew 28. He appeared to the apostles at the Mount of Olives in Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1 uh, before his ascension. And then this morning's passage, he appeared to a crowd of more than 500 people. If you look at verse 5 of this morning's passage, we're told he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 
500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul says, they're not dead. If you want to go uh, fact search for yourself, the, many of these men are still alive. You can go sit in their living room with them. You can put the cameras on them and hear their accounts, and you can do that over and over again, and you're going to get the same record from different people because they all saw Jesus collectively at the same time. And then verse seven, he appeared to, to his brother James and then to all of the apostles. And so some lean to this last and fifth theory in light of all of those arguments, which is known as the spiritual resurrection theory, that some people believe that Jesus was resurrected, um, but it was in more of a, uh, a symbolic, spiritual, metaphorical sense, that he didn't uh, rise literally in bodily form, um, that he resurrected in our hearts, but not in his body, and yet we're told in Luke 24 that as they were talking, the disciples, about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why did doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. He goes on to say, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, I love this, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate before them. It's almost like, hey, you, you guys wanna see a trick? Pick a card, any card. And, and he takes a piece of fish and he eats it in, in order to show them, hey, ghosts can't do that. You can't sit, sit with a ghost at Long John Silver's and watch it you know, eat fish and fries. That doesn't happen. Human bodies eat real tangible Food. Jesus is disproving this theory um, with the disciples in this moment. And you also have the account of doubting Thomas touching the nail-scarred hands of Jesus in John chapter 20. We talked about that on Easter Sunday. And then even moving beyond some of the biblical evidence, you have the circumstantial evidence, including the character of the disciples. Right? The disciples were devout Jews that were well aware that if they were to worship a false god and told everyone around them that they should do the same, that they'd be sentenced to eternal hell for breaking the first two of the Ten Commandments. Not only that, from a character standpoint, they were both arrogant and cowardly at the same time. If you read the gospel accounts, and all of a sudden upon seeing the risen Jesus, these men have humble confidence. Secondly, the day of worship changed. That the early church uh, began to worship on Sunday, even though devout Jews had worshiped on Saturdays for thousands of years. The Sabbath was sacred to devout Jews. If you read the Old Testament, you see that clearly that um, Jew, a good Jew would not have dared to desecrate the Sabbath unless there, unless there was a good reason to change the day of worship. It wasn't going to happen, but there was. The early church started worshiping on Sunday because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And not just the day of worship, but also the object of worship changed. That devout Jews went from worshiping God to worshiping Jesus as God. Devout Jews wouldn't have made Jesus the object of worship if they didn't really believe that he was God. To do so would be to worship a false God, for which the sentence, again, would be eternal hell for breaking the first two of the Ten Commandments. And then you have the conversion of skeptics like the Apostle Paul, who went from devout Pharisee, an insolent opponent of Christianity, to devout Christ follower. He went from Christian killer to Christian 
And Paul attributes his conversion to seeing the risen Jesus. Look at this morning's passage beginning in verse 8 and looking through verse 11. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, Jesus, appeared also to me, Paul. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I was after Christians. But not by my works, not by my merits, not by my accolades, not by my resume, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so, so you believe that Paul says, I went from killing Christians to declaring what I just couldn't help but to declare, which was the gospel, the good news that Jesus lived my life, died my death, and rose and conquered my great enemies of sin and death. And I can't help but to declare that, Paul says. How do you explain that? And then lastly, from a circumstantial vantage point, the suffering deaths of the disciples, that the disciples abandoned their jobs and, and hit the road, proclaiming with reckless abandon that Jesus had risen. And they believed that because they had seen him risen. They got nothing out of the deal according to the world's standards, right? If you watch their, their lives unfold post-resurrection, it's not pretty oftentimes. Instead, they got mocked, beaten, imprisoned. They were put to death in torturous ways. According to historical records, this, this is what we know. Uh, we know that Andrew preached the gospel uh, to those in modern-day Georgia and, and modern-day Bulgaria and was crucified on an X-shaped cross. We know that Bartholomew preached the gospel to the people of India and left them with a book of the Bible, Matthew's gospel account, before he was skinned alive and beheaded. We know that James, son of Alphaeus, was beaten and stoned by the Jews while preaching in Jerusalem, and that didn't kill him, so they bashed his head in with a club. We know that James, son of Zebedee, was beheaded with a sword by Herod while preaching in Judea. We know that John founded a number of churches and was captured and taken to Rome, where he was boiled in a cauldron of, of oil. He survived that and was then exiled to the island of Patmos, one of the few to survive and live to an old age. Uh, we know that Matthew preached in Ethiopia and was chopped apart by a weapon called a halberd, which was essentially a, a spear with an axe blade attached to it. We know that Matthias was elected to fill the place of Judas Iscariot, right? Everybody wants that job. You're reading that chapter of the Bible and you're like, who gets it? Who gets to follow, you know, in Judas's spot and take over and be a part of the inner circle? Matthias was stoned in Jerusalem and eventually beheaded as a martyr. Philip preached in eastern Turkey and was scourged, thrown into prison, and then crucified upside down by the emperor Domitian. Simon the Zealot preached the gospel in Egypt and Persia where he was crucified. Thaddeus was martyred in Mesopotamia. The doubting Thomas, who went on to become declaring Thomas, preached in India and was thrust through the four members of his body with a pine spear. Mark, who wrote one of our gospel accounts, one of the books of your very Bible, was literally dragged and torn to pieces by the people of Alexandria. Luke, who wrote another of the gospel accounts in your Bible, in my Bible, was hanged to death from an olive tree in Greece. Stephen, the first post-resurrection martyr that you read about in Acts chapter 7, was stoned to death in the street in Passover in the spring following Jesus' crucifixion. And Peter was crucified upside down at his request by the Emperor Nero while preaching the gospel in Rome. Lee Strobel goes on to say, people will die for their religious beliefs if they sincerely believe they're true, but people won't die for their religious beliefs if they know their beliefs are false. Thanks for listening. 
If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.